0: Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that sixteen thousand mark. Uh, thank you everybody. We appreciate it and um, yeah and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart, and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners, uh, in today's episode we chat with the founding director of Maiden, Chris May, about the latest or how the latest technology developments in the UK aim to positively transform the therapist and client experience. We also chat about how mental health care can lead the way for health care as a whole and why the Australian and New Zealand mental health services are in danger of falling behind. Tune in now. Chris May, thanks so much for joining us and spending some time with myself and sharing your story, your journey with our listeners. Appreciate it.
1: Great. Right. It's great to be here. We're locked out of the country for three years. So it's nice to be back.
0: Three years. So normally in a normal year, you would travel a fair bit, would you? Or you just come to Australia more often?
1: I probably would have been to Australia before now if, yeah. if the pandemic hadn't happened.
0: For work or for pleasure?
1: For work. We've got okay. a number of clients out here and we do like to have some face to face contact.
0: Cool. Well, I'm keen to get into that and what you guys are doing now and the amazing stuff that you're up to, but let's just give a bit of context for our listeners. Where did it all start for you in relation to your passion, your desire to want to get involved in the health sector?
1: I actually started my career as an engineer in manufacturing. I was making chocolate bars and
0: in london or a country this is in the
1: uk yep. so actually yeah, in, in the cadbury's factory which has been made famous by royal charlie and the chocolate factory yeah so that's where i was based and there's something that about that that didn't really feel it was my life's purpose i guess and, yes. and i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do next so i went back to university and i was working there on a variety of projects and being encouraged to do research and while i was at Cadbury's, I developed an expertise in manufacturing systems. And through a kind of a, a strange series of events, I ended up working in a hospital on a project with some students. And the university was encouraging me to do some research into something to do with manufacturing. So I decided to do a project comparing manufacturing systems with hospital systems wow. to see if either could learn from the other. And I very quickly learned that manufacturing had nothing to learn from healthcare whatsoever. It was, it was streets ahead. And I was completely taken over by a passion really for sort of improving healthcare systems. I basically jumped ship and moved out of manufacturing and moved into the health sector and started to basically do work in digital systems in, in the health sector.
0: Isn't that incredible? So, so the manufacturing side of things said – Chris, can you go and check out the healthcare? Or they said can you do some research and you said, you know what? I'll look at the healthcare system and we'll see if there's some comparisons where we might find some more efficiencies, some better processes to then adopt into our industry. Is that is that what it was about?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult to kind of as a concept, but in terms of manufacturing, there are certain types of manufacturing operations, which you would probably call body repair shops. So I remember working on a project with a big turbine company, and which basically took in these huge turbines and repaired them. Now, some of them were taken in on a planned maintenance basis. Some of them were emergency repairs. And when you think about it, it's not much different to people. You know, we have bodies and they need repairing, and sometimes those are emergencies and sometimes those are elective. And there are sole systems to manage those those machines going into a body repair shop, and yet the hospital systems work in a very different way. And the question I had as an engineer was, why was that? You know, why did they work differently? I basically found that the systems running hospitals are far more rudimentary than those in manufacturing. Right. Do you think, I mean, there's
0: such, there's immense value, isn't there, in any industry you're in, let's just put aside the health sector for a second, but just to... To try and learn from other industries, which we typically look within our own industries to want to see what the competition is doing or see what other people are doing to see, oh yeah, they're doing that. We can adopt a bit of that. But to look outside the sector, to look outside the industry, to cross-pollinate with other people outside of what we're already doing, what we know, is such an opportunity to learn, isn't
1: it? It absolutely is. I mean, coming into the health sector as an engineer, I found out, I was almost unique. There was nobody like me in any department or organization that I came across in my first three years in the health service. I was very much data driven and very much into doing data analysis and, and that just didn't happen. I mean, the health service certainly at the time ran on politics more than anything. And lots of the managers of hospitals and health services were ex armed forces, which is also quite interesting. So there was. Huge opportunities there, and that's why I basically decided ultimately to jump into the health sector because I could just see there was so much that needed doing and I could help.
0: And are you looking at it from a processes, service delivery? Are you looking at it from the rigidity of the systems that have been set up? What sort of lens are you looking at it through?
1: I think as an engineer, you look at everything as if it's a machine that needs fine-tuning and needs optimizing. So I kind of came into the health service with that kind of mindset, it's gone through a huge shift since then over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, but that's where it started. It's,
0: it's incredible, isn't it? Because it's very unusual to hear a story background like that where an engineer has transitioned from manufacturing to the health sector.
1: It is. I don't know anybody else who's really done it, You know, apart from some of the people you know, that I work with now. What year are we talking that this was? So this would have been in 1990. Right. Yeah, so basically end of the 80s.
0: And so at the time that you came into the health sector, was it a focus holistically on that hospital, how they ran things and the systems and processes with that one hospital, or was it elevated to be more around a holistic approach to healthcare in the whole country?
1: It was around that hospital initially. Okay. And I worked there for three years, and in those three years completely transformed the IT and the date and the use of data within the hospital then when i left i realized actually i could offer those sorts of services to other hospitals so i went freelance for quite a while and 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 sort of sold myself around lots of hospitals doing similar things and and got involved in lots of projects doing data analysis and
0: in the uk mostly
1: all all in the uk okay uh, uh, apart from one project in gibraltar
0: so so you're looking then you took that one experience from that hospital with processes and efficiencies, and then he went out to other hospitals in, in, in the neighbouring or in that country.
1: And then from there, what happened? So I got hand hotted by a management consultancy. So I did that for six years, and that took me all the way up to the year 2000. And then in the year 2000, for a variety of reasons, I left that and decided to set up my own company. At the time, the reason was because I could see that the health service was not using the data that it was collecting, and it was collecting lots of data, but then just not using it at all, and there's huge amounts of value in that data. So I set up Maiden with initially a plan to create a boutique analytics company with about 12 people in it, and it all went terribly wrong.
0: As it does when you first get into something, <laughs> right? And you you have a passion, and you start with an idea, and then you think the thing will just Take off?
1: Yeah, no, and it did, but not in the way I expected. So when I say it went terribly wrong, I was being slightly sort of sarcastic because we're now 120 people, so 10 times bigger than I expected to be or that my dream was. You know, we've got, you know, customers all over the world, some in Australia, et cetera. It was not, you know, not what the plan was at all. That's incredible. So around what year did you start Maiden? So we started in 2000.
0: 2000. So 22 years been going.
1: And for, for more or less the first decade of that, we were working in cancer services. We got involved in the national cancer program and we're developing lots of digital tools to support that program. That was cancer, not council. Cancer.
0: Cancer, okay. Yeah. So, and so using data to look at the metrics, look at the…
1: Yeah, basically, as we came into the new millennium, there was a postcode lottery in cancer care. You, know, you, okay. you did not get the same quality of care wherever you went in the country. And the National Cancer Program was really designed to remove that postcode lottery and made sure that everyone got the same kind of standard of service. Yeah. And we basically developed the digital systems to support that program.
0: Wow. Okay. So you look for patterns, you look for a, a process of which you almost need to go through a sequential process of what needs to happen at what point. So that ultimately it's consistent no matter where you go to get help.
1: Yeah. It's actually a lot to do with what was in place in each hospital. I mean, we had, for example, we had surgeons who were dabbling in very complex cancers, where, which they never would see maybe one off or two of a year, and not getting very good outcomes as a result. So there was a lot sort of kind of reconfiguration of the services that was needed, but we needed to bring and su- bring out and service all this data to be able to show that. So it was a lot about making sure that every cancer service had the same kind of expertise. You know things like operational policy, specialist nurses, oncologists, all that kind of thing were were available everywhere, but where specialist cancer care was required that only kind of took place in, in in centers that would you know specialize in those kind of cancers and they weren't just done anywhere
0: where, where did your curiosity with data come from it's something you've always had was it a
1: yeah some i don't know where it came from to be honest mm. with you i love i love data i love surfacing it i love infographics which you know present data in really interesting innovative ways i don't know where it comes from it's just something that's well and how
0: important is data in your opinion in shaping the decisions of how things could be done better where we need to focus priorities i mean is data is pretty much the be-all and end-all to be able to determine In which area we focus
1: i think it's absolutely critical to be at least a component of how we make decisions Mm. so i'm not i'm not sitting here as i'm as i sometimes do when i'm playing devil's advocate and say for example in mental health which you know is what we're talking about or what we're going to come on to talk about that therapists are going to be replaced by robots but it's not necessarily going to be impossible Not in my lifetime or your lifetime probably, but with advances in artificial intelligence, you can see how a robot could have a very meaningful conversation with a patient about their depression with a view to, you know, taking them through a series of therapy. And, you know, the question is, will we ever be able to replicate that in such a way that there's a human connection, you know, which is kind of all important in therapy? So I'm not saying that we would get that far, but actually we can go quite far down the journey of using data to support this whole therapeutic process.
0: It's incredible, Chris, just to hear even Maiden and how you started it and how far it's come. Did you ever wish it to be as big as it is now? Are you happy with where it is? Are you still looking to grow?
1: Well, obviously, as I said before, I only envisage forming a company of 12 people so it wasn't ever planned to be as big as it is but now we are where we are and we can see what needs doing and all of the opportunities around yeah then yes we want to go global you know we started off in the uk we've been in in australia for a few years we've now won contracts in canada but actually we would love what we're doing to be sort of shared you know around the globe
0: and is it something that from when you started the company or the organization The opportunities that you saw then to start the company have changed or have evolved as you've gotten into this over the 22 years. Are you now identifying further uses, further opportunities within the health sector? You're thinking, wow, there's an opportunity. I didn't see this at the start, but now we almost owe it to people to get this, to to apply this, to use our knowledge and resources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right now we're focused on mental health and we have been for the last 14 years and There's so much to do just in this space that we could just focus on mental health, but we also see the things, the tools and the techniques that we've developed for mental health services, we can also see would be equally valuable in lots of other clinical settings, you know, and not just in, you know, psychological therapies and mental health, but, you know, we're having meaningful discussions about musculoskeletal, you know, right. Issues, which actually you, you can't get more different from psychological therapies ones yeah. highly physical, the other ones you know all about mental health and yet what we're doing can be equally applied in both settings
0: so chris for the for the person that doesn't really understand it how do you go about using data in order to create better experiences or outcomes for both clients and clinicians or therapists i mean i assume that's on the face of it, what
1: you do yeah and that's what i'll be talking about in you know my session tomorrow but i, I could approach this from a number of angles but let me just talk from a, a sort of a perspective of a patient and a therapist so you're a patient and i'm the therapist and you come in to see me i collect a load of information about you so you know you're a male you're I'm guessing, in your 30s. That's
0: the sheet that you fill out when you first get in. Yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: So we collect all of that data. I'll do some kind of an assessment and where I'll ask you a whole series of questions. And basically, at the end of all of that, I will have a profile about you, which I will then use as a therapist, together with my experience of being a therapist, to work out what treatment program I would then take you through in order to get a good outcome for you. What a therapist generally will never do is say, okay, let me find all the other people who are like Sam in our database. And I mean Sam in the broader context of everyth- all the data I've just collected. The
0: box ticking. That we've
1: done. Uh, 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 yep. All of that. And, and look at all of the therapies that all the other Sams have been through and what outcomes they got at the other end and use that data to work out what I should do with you. and. It's even more than that, about 50% of the outcomes that a patient gets is actually related to the therapeutic alliance, which is the rapport that a patient and a therapist basically establishes. So it's not just about me as a therapist. One of the questions I should be asking is actually, am I the best therapist to treat you or have the other SAMs had much better outcomes with one of my colleagues, you know, in the same practice. And all of that is in the data because it's all held in the systems that you've been using, but it is never used for a patient that comes through the door.
0: Got you. Okay, so you're taking the stuff that already being collected, you're then using that to almost have some sort of, not benchmarking, but trying to find what similarities are within this system already and the outcomes that they got based on the experience or the services that they undertook and, and how that outcome went and then using that data to then inform what approach you should be taking with the person that's in front of you now
1: and informs a key word because we're not saying that the computer tells you what to do yeah but it gives you another arrow in your quiver basically to yes. say okay here's a load of information that might be useful when you're deciding what to do with this patient and you know, because those other SAMs may have had a whole range of different therapists, some may have had cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy, you know, no, you know, you name it and you may be surprised at what outcomes they've got with different therapies. Sometimes I think as, as a therapist, you can get into a kind of a one track mind, you, you know, you may be a specialist in cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what you know, and that's what you therefore tend to use every time, but it may not be the best for the patient in the room at that moment.
0: Right. And is this only something that you need a practice with multiple clinicians, therapists to be able to get that data? If it was just Sam and Co. and it was me by myself, would you still have the would it have still have the impact? And would I need an, at least five years worth of data to actually draw some meaningful conclusions? So,
1: so you hit on the big problem I think Australia has, and and that is because you do not have a very few organisations. Our practices have enough data to be able to do this. Now, as a practice of you and a colleague, you would be able to do it if you had access to a bigger database with all of this data collected. But in Australia, no one has that access. So they can't do at the moment what, you know, properly what we're suggesting. You have to have some kind of size. And the problem in Australia for doing this, and this is what I'll be talking about tomorrow, is that the australian mental health service generally is so fragmented there are lots and lots of little organizations all doing their bit for the mental health cause and because that's so fragmented and so small you lose the opportunity to use the data really meaningfully
0: right and so are we saying that in the uk that there are that the system is not as fragmented there are large organizations that are employing a bunch of clinicians or therapists that you can then plug this into
1: get the data and help provide better outcomes for people. So yes. Yeah. so basically in the UK you still have lots of providers. Right. And we we have something in the UK which was launched in about 2008-9 called the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies program, so IAPT. And organizations can bid for contracts as part of that national program. So you still have lots of organizations okay. um, and those are both NHS organizations but they're also charities. So pretty much You know, a similar kind of spectrum of organizations you might have in Australia, but because they've all joined this program and part of the program is collecting the same data and submitting the same data into a national database. Suddenly you have this potential to use that data to help everybody who's part of the program. That's not what is happening in Australia at the moment. And even within the UK, there are, you know, the organizations do tend to be bigger. So clients over there, our smallest clients tend to be about 10 therapists, but we, we go up to about 600 therapists, which is really large. Wow. In Australia, you know, 10 would be one of the larger organizations that we, we deal with over here.
0: Why is that, do you think? What are, what are we doing um, or not doing?
1: I don't know that. I, if I'm honest with you, it's, it's one of the questions that I'm trying to answer is why that is, but I guess overall it's because there is no centralized organization. I think for one of the problems is you, you have this state statewide system. So Mm. you have some healthcare policies, which are generated from national government level, but actually most stuff takes place in the PHNs within the states. So already you fragmented it into the states within Australia and, and then that breaks down into kind of the organization within those states. So you kind of, you're losing that kind of opportunity for sort of a greater, you know, more holistic organization.
0: Is the, is the, the answer or solution with that then something to do around trying to get as many people to get on board the system, to sign up to the system and put the inputs into it? That way, even though I'm operating out of Brisbane or Gold Coast or Sydney, or over in Wellington and New Zealand, wherever I'm operating in Australia or New Zealand, let's say it was Australia and New Zealand, if clinicians or therapists put data into one software one and had access to it, would that then give data, would that work, even though it was not one organisation, but it was everybody that put data into a centralised spot?
1: So yes, that could happen. So uh, that's one solution, because so, it depends what you mean by system. So if you're talking about system as a non-IT thing, somebody could create a program that other, all organizations subscribe to that basically collects a standardized data set and a number of. IT systems could support that program because it's quite good to have competition and there isn't just one system that, that does it. And so you can have lots of organizations all using different systems, but because they're collecting the same data and submitting the same data, you have that opportunity to create sort of a national or statewide database that could then be used by everybody. However, in the absence of that, then yes, we're able to provide that through our system because we can create the ecosystem that people join. And we can collect the data centrally and we can, you know, in theory, use all of that data to help everybody. And not only the data that we collect, but one of the things our system does is it integrates with online therapy platforms, the e-mental health stuff that right. we very much talked about here. And therefore we can build a much bigger ecosystem, basically where we're collecting the data on behalf of lots of different providers of digital and face-to-face therapies and use that data you know again to support everybody and help them make those decisions so yes there is a technological solution we can provide that but that's only in the absence of somebody doing something sort of more centrally
0: and is that a i mean would that the cultural differences would the different approaches in different countries would that benefit do you think getting those insights to people or do you think the way someone treated someone over in in london or manchester and someone here is trying to make let's say melbourne and trying to draw some conclusions from that do you think that's still some significant benefit that's relatable and applicable
1: i think what we're saying is that there are humans are humans and they're humans all over the world and there'll be a, a lot of data points that we collect which will be similar across the world but there will also be localized contexts so here you have the indigenous People and their issues are probably things that we don't experience anywhere in the UK. Gotcha. So, but that all gets sorted out by the data, yeah. You know, because actually, you know, when we're looking for Sams in our database, it yeah. will, you know, it will screen out the Sams no matter where they are in in the world.
0: Right. It's really interesting, isn't
1: it? It's really interesting. I mean, it's you know, it's it's what I've dedicated the last you know 22 years of my life to and and there is still so you know so far to go with this i think though with the advent of ai now and machine learning we suddenly have the data processing power and the tools to be able to do this on a completely different level than we were able to before and so the opportunities for doing this kind of analysis and you know supporting patients and clinicians because we use this in lots of different ways it's not just about improving outcomes for patients it's also for the clinicians it's also about predicting whether patients are likely to engage with their treatment whether they're like to drop out halfway through whether they're likely to turn up for their appointments we can use this data to make all of these predictions and then we can, you know, support that with tools to try and improve those metrics in all of those areas. So, you know, there's there's a huge amount we can do. And then again, with AI and machine learning, there, there'll be more and more.
0: Let's you've touched on the tech side of things. Let's go into that at the moment. What what advancements? What are you seeing around the world? You've obviously have a, a bit of a presence around the world in this in the mental health space as it relates to data and tech. As, as it moves forward, where do you think, what excites you most about where this is heading with the technology as it relates to being able to apply it in the mental health space?
1: I think that in other industries, you can kind of get a sense of what's possible by looking elsewhere already. So, for example, most of us will have an Amazon account. And when we sign in, what we're experiencing is exactly the same software. So... When your homepage loads, it's running exactly the same code as it does when my homepage loads, yet yeah, our two homepages will be completely different. And that's because the data that, it, that the code is accessing and it will drive a very different homepage for you than it will for me. It will recommend different products, different books, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and when Amazon recommends a book, it's more likely to get A good book recommendation for you than your best friend, simply because it's accessing all of the books you've read before, all of the ratings you've given those books, found other people who have read the same books, got the same ratings, looked at what other books that they've read and given high ratings to, and all of that processing is done in order to come back with a book recommendation for you. That's already happening today. So why can't it happen in a healthcare setting?
0: Yeah, I get it. So again, looking outside the sector, apply that technology yeah
1: it's it yeah the technology is there it's being used it's just not being used in healthcare yet and people are scared of it so you know there are lots of opportunities there and hopefully i kind of got you know across the excitement and the potential of what we can do with this data but there is still a lot of resistance to you know to taking the first steps i think clinicians particularly are nervous about it particularly nervous about ai because i have been you know the thing about machine learning is that the machine is learning so right at the beginning it doesn't always get it right which is why i'm very cautious about using words like recommending treatment etc we we generally talk about predictions so we predict how a patient is going to do or we you know or whether patient's going to engage or drop out or we predict what outcomes they're going to get in different scenarios. Because if we use the word recommendation, it sounds like the machine is doing the clinician's work for them, and it's not. It's basically coming up with suggestions, suggestions and predictions, mm. but it is learning. So what it does is it basically then watches what the clinician actually does because the clinician is free to ignore the robot's advice mm-hmm. and do its own thing. But the robot will learn from that. So it's recommendations, predictions, whatever you want to call them, will be better next time.
0: So the longer it goes on, the the smarter, more relevant, more accurate these will be.
1: Absolutely, yeah, Yeah. because you're collecting more and more data. But we're starting from a place today where IAPTIS has in its overall database about 7 million patient records. Wow. So we've already got all of that history to draw on just as our starting point. And, and, of course, as we add a million patients to our database every year, which is, you know, where we're at at the moment, then, you know, that learning will just get better and better.
0: And, and do you think Australia and New Zealand are at risk falling behind in this space because we are so disjointed, segmented? Is that the risk, do you think, for
1: us? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and I think, you know, right, right today, today it's not a serious problem, but, you know, if you fast forward into 10 years – Unless Australia somehow manages to integrate all of these small providers that are operating across the country in some way that enables the data to be standardised and where we can do comparative analyses, then I think it's inevitable that it will fall behind. I think in the UK we have an advantage because we have a national health. We're double the population that Australia is, so we already have that advantage. So it's been easier for us to get started on this journey. But I think any country where the health service is is broken up in such a way as it is in Australia, then that task will be much harder. So it's a good idea to start thinking about it now.
0: Mm. As you look around to other countries other than the UK, are you seeing some serious progress in particular countries around mental health and, and outcomes for patients?
1: I'm not yet. What we are doing is we're seeing the technology being made available and there are great things happening all around the world its actual use in practice to make meaningful change for patients is still in its infancy we're only at the start of this journey
0: mm. which is exciting
1: very exciting um,
0: but also we just need to make sure that we that we can try and bring together and have the the structure to want to improve things into the future and not be so short sighted for what's yeah working today and
1: and someone's got to do that yeah Uh, and i'm not sure who that person or organization you know is it's because of the fragmentation you find that you know governmentally it's fragmented too because of all of the states you have all these different Mm. commissions taking place last time i was here at the international mental health conference i think there were four mental health commissions going on in australia at the time there's a national one There's a productivity commission there was one going on in victoria and they all basically do different work and conclude different things and then it doesn't get joined together and then it gets forgotten and then there's another one somebody's got to take all of this and say okay let's let's corral all this brilliant work and let's make something meaningful from it
0: yeah getting some consistency among the states and yeah i agree with that if you if you could wave your your magic wand chris and say well here's the best situation would you say that having an overarching federal government body that that actually has the database that that actually has the systems that people can tap into whether you're a small operator or an organization with 30 clinicians or what have you do you think that is the way to go is that what
1: we're saying i think it's certainly a way to go i mean i think The government certainly is the organization which is best placed to do this and to make a start, but it doesn't have to tell everybody how to do their jobs or how to run their organizations or how to treat their patients. All it has to do is say, actually, guys, let's all make sure that we work to a similar data set, make sure it's, you know, the same for everybody. And then let's give people access to that data. And then actually private enterprise will probably do the rest. I think if that was available, I think you will find that entrepreneurs would come in and they would make use of that data and they would work with the organisations to create analytical tools and, you know, systems which are better. It's, but that underlying infrastructure needs to be there to kind of almost act as a springboard for all this opportunity that will then follow.
0: I find it really interesting to talk about because it's, it's so fascinating, but like you said, we're, we're sort of not really even at the starting line here in Australia yet with what's possible with this opportunity. But at the end of the day, if it's going to provide better outcomes for clients and therapists, perhaps even speed up recovery, I mean, what's there to lose?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in our you know, initial, I think we, we started on this journey when we had 6 million patients in our database and we did our first sort of machine learning predictions, recommendations, and they seemed to indicate that we could improve patient outcomes by 12% kind of straight away, just by switching some patients from one of the therapies they did to another. And, you know, just by just switching this thing on and people following it, that's what we thought we could achieve pretty much overnight. Did that happen? It doesn't happen because there is a thing. What, what immediately happened was that AI, I think across the globe now, has come under medical devices territory. So there's a whole regulatory framework you have to go through in order to introduce AI into healthcare, right. so what's happened is that I think there's probably a lot of organizations that have got all of this stuff, it's all ready to be switched on and used, but no one can do because you know, they haven't gone through the regulatory framework to allow that to happen. So it's a bit frustrating because I think there's a different way of approaching this, but it's not the way that certainly in the UK we've chosen to go. I like to think we can kind of iterate our way to perfection in this area, bit by bit, but actually there's another agenda, which is slightly opposed to that, which is about clinical safety. And I completely understand that. We have to make sure that patients are safe and they're not subjected to AI recommendations, which are actually harmful for them. So you kind of have these competing forces that at the moment are sort of vying for supremacy. So that's why we've not switched ours on yet. We're working our way through the regulatory framework to get it switched on.
0: Right. Has there been any proof of concept then?
1: Yeah, we've got proof of concept. And what we have done is we switched on the predictions for for looking at patient engagement, for example. So all the things about dropping out, not attending appointments, that doesn't come under medical devices. But basically anything that could influence a clinician's decision-making is counted as a medical device and therefore gets treated as such.
0: Right. Okay. I understand that so but the way that they've been the the way that sam let's say in the system has been treated before this many treatments this is the sort of treatments he had you can still use that
1: well you you can't use it with ai okay okay so we can go so far so we've we've built lots of analytical tools into our apps. so for example i I could run a a query on how many people who are male For example, say, okay, all the males in my database, what kind of treatments have they had and what outcomes did they get? And then I could say, okay, well, what about males in the certain age band? And so I could run the query again. What about males in that age band who are white? and run the query again? So I can keep adding variables to it. The problem is that when you get to the 20, 30, 40, 50 variables we might be talking about our ability to analyze and make sense of that becomes very difficult without ai so you know and you'll get better you'll get better predictions and recommendations the more variables you use and that's when ai becomes absolutely necessary how far off
0: the ai approvals do you think you are
1: oh um probably a couple of years but the the problem we have an additional problem in the UK is that uh, we've left the EU, as you probably know. We had yes. the thing called Brexit.
0: Yes, a little bit there.
1: And when we were part of Europe, we were part of their medical devices r- framework. Because we've come out, we're effectively starting having to create our own again. So as a, as a UK, independent. So, and that's kind of, it seems to be being made up as we go along at the moment, along with everything else. So it's it's a bit of a a messy stage at the moment. I'm sure it'll sort itself out soon.
0: I mean, when it does, it'd be great to see that as improvements and see what sort of data we'll pull from those efficiencies as well. When you say it's 12% improvement, are we talking about the length of time it takes for people to... Recover to have the treatment? Are we we're, talking?
1: We're talking about the number of patients that do recover. Okay. So, so the 12%. Got so, you. Yeah. So basically, in the UK, our recovery stats are just hovering over 50% at the moment. And so basically, for all the patients who go through therapy, about 52% on average recover. It varies across the country. So there are mm. areas that are achieving in their 60s and some in their 40s overall, it's about 52%. What we showed on the database is that we could push that into the 60s. So it was basically 12% on top of that,
0: 52%. And how does that compare to other countries? Or we don't actually know. I have
1: no clue because I've not seen any other studies that, no, I don't are, doing, know. that are doing similar work to the work that we're doing. So,
0: I don't know how you'd find out that in Australia. That would be really hard to it do. W- it
1: would be impossible to do it today. Yeah. Absolutely impossible. We're, there is no database with that data in that you could actually do that analysis um, and see whether mm. you could get those at all. And that's a problem.
0: So, Chris, you, you've obviously made clearly passionate about what you're doing. The engineering behind it, the science behind it, the data behind it is really what's, what's driving it all, but also the outcomes, potentially, the better outcomes that patients and even therapists will benefit from in doing this.
1: And this is all about patient outcomes. And helping clinicians do their yep. job more efficiently—it's about those two things. Yes, and we use the data for those two things, and we mustn't forget that it's not about. Yes, it's not about an analysis trip, you know, where we yep. kind of do it for its own sake. Because there is
0: at some point where people say, "Oh man, why are we even? Like, even on the sheets that you're filling out, why are we even collecting that data? Like, what will even happen to that data once I fill this form out? Like, you don't—you just wonder what companies even do with the data that they get, and. It's probably just a checklist that they've been given from something else or someone else and then all of a sudden we've got to collect all this stuff, but really what's relevant to their job, but you're saying that there is merit to all this data that could be used uh, I think for the, the benefit.
1: I think the problem is that nothing is really done with the data. Yeah. And, and that's the problem, is that it's all collective and certainly that... That data should be put back into the therapist's hands in in, in meaningful insights in mm. some way. And it can be. But you know, most EHRs in the world are designed to suck data in, not to actually give you meaningful information out. In fact, a lot of EHRs, no matter which health sector you're in, don't even have analytical packages or modules associated with them. They effectively are simply data sucking machines. And we've certainly taken a different philosophy to that. We we invest as much time in surfacing the data in meaningful insights as we do getting the data in efficiently.
0: What about stuff that you just can't get a data reading for? I mean, obviously the field of psychology is in – it would be great to measure everything, but some things – what would you say to things that just can't be measured? How do we bring that to the table – and does it have just as much of a right of a seat as the data would?
1: So right now, the sorts of things that we can't measure easily, for example, is your DNA. Right. So, for example, if there was a genetic to component to depression yeah. or anxiety, right now, today, we would not be able to use that. Okay. Okay. Because we're not taking your DNA and analyzing it and adding it to your patient records. Similarly, we're not doing brain scans and looking at, you know, the way your neurons fire up around your brain. So all of these things could be factors. Mm. I think the point is that we can only use what we've got today. Gotcha. But in the future, we will be able to use all that other stuff as well.
0: Is that where you think this is all going, is to be able to do all that in the healthcare sector, to be able to make quicker, faster calls, to be able to get better outcomes in a short amount of time?
1: Yeah, inevitably, you know, people, when I talk about this, people think we're creating a production line and that we're standardizing healthcare for everybody when actually patients want to be treated as individuals. Yeah. I think, though, that the, the thing that gets lost in this debate is that we're actually creating the ability to do personalized care. So if I go back to my Amazon example, by standardizing absolutely everything, which is what Amazon do, I mean, Amazon... You might think are you know successful because they've got low prices or they've got a slick interface or whatever for me it's all about the way they've used data that's that actually underpins their success ultimately and and that's why i think we need to start applying it in the healthcare setting but it's standardized in order to personalize
0: right And that's where a lot of these companies, a lot of these tech spaces are going, isn't it? It's all about data. It's all about trying to interpret the data to make meaningful, customized, personalized experiences for people, no matter what industry you're in. If you're trying to, in the marketing game, for instance, you're trying to capture as much data to be able to make it as relevant as you can for that person to create a better outcome for them. Is that
1: correct? We live in the information age. Yeah. So right now, today, you know, data is the new oil.
0: I agree with that. And do you think it's going to get too extreme with this, Chris? Do you think it's going to go too far down? Do you think it's – what's – yeah, where do you think this could lead?
1: I don't think it's going to get too extreme. I think that the problem we have is that we're getting a very biased data set. Right. So we have to talk about – you know, in that context, we'd have to talk about social media, for example. Yes. The machines that drive – social media and feed you the posts that you read when you log onto your Facebook accounts are driven by AI. Mm. And they look at what people are posting and they work out what what posts to serve to you. That machine is in danger of learning all the wrong things about humanity and the way we are and behave as individuals. And you know, because actually there are people with agendas, you know, when there's all that stuff about fake news, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's a bit like the internet, isn't it? When it first came, it's just a tool and it can be used for good or evil. And social media has good aspects to it and it has aspects to it, which you could say were evil. Mm. There are risks associated with this. There will be a downside, you know, that we have to guard against. But ultimately it's going to happen. It's not going to stop. That data will get used more and more and more. To improve all sorts of things, and we just need to mitigate against the the dark side of whatever it is we create. And I can't even predict what what that will be or what nefarious uses some people might come up with to use it for in the future.
0: That's the scary part, isn't it? You're right with that social media. But even then, when people post things, it's very distorted version of their real life events. And so, in some respects, are you getting the full extent of their experience, or really only what they're posting, which is what the machine is. Learning, but then they also know exactly what you're liking, what you're looking at, how long you're looking at one particular ad, and then all of a sudden, you've, and, and they're also hearing what you say as well these days, aren't they, to customise it on your phone. So
1: the, so the machines are actually learning as about go. humanity, mm. yeah. And if humanity is not presenting the best version of itself to the social media machines, then it is actually getting a very – Distorted. Yeah, a distorted and dark view of what humanity actually is. There is a book, I can't remember the title of it, out now, which is basically saying the only solution to this is for all the people who are sensible and, you know, and have only good intentions to get on social media and start actually posting things which are positive so the machine can learn about the other side of humanity. And, you know, but I mean, there is a mixture of all of that going on on social media, but, you know... It's the machines only learn what we teach them. And and we don't even realize when we're posting and when we're liking things, et cetera, that we are actually teaching the machines and the machines are then teaching back us. So, you know, they are feeding us posts, you know, in line with what they think we're interested in. The whole thing becomes a kind of an echo chamber and it's an echo chamber that can kind of go in a positive or a negative direction.
0: You know what, it's great to see it being coming, you know, to come into the health sector and start being able to use the data for a better outcome. That's, yeah, it's probably later than what you would have liked it to happen, especially, obviously, we're in the infancy of us here in Australia. But I certainly hope in the UK that things progress enough so you can actually go out there and use this technology in the sector to see how it goes for you guys and for the patients. Well, we're certainly going to be trying Chris, is really interesting. Is there anything, last point you want to share in closing around everything that you're up to?
1: I'm not sure. Obviously this will go out after my talk, but I'm going to be speaking about this tomorrow and I am going to probably be a bit challenging to the audience about, you know, the trick that they're missing in Australia to, to use data to inform their practice. I know that the last time I came here, I talked about a very similar subject, and it sparked a lot of really interesting conversations and meetings that kind of took place afterwards so certainly there are people in Australia who recognize this problem and you know but nobody's in a position to do anything about it and somehow we've got to that's the solution we've got to find. who can actually do something about it?
0: Bruce, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in this and try and touch base with you? What's the best way
1: so I my company is Maiden, M-A-Y-D-E-N. We have a subsidiary in Australia, but if you just go to maiden.co.uk, then basically
0: go from you know, there.
1: Go from there yeah.
0: Chris, it's been absolutely insightful and really interesting talking to you about this. And when I read the brief of what your presentation was about, I thought, oh, this sounds really cool and, and cool it is. And I can't wait to see where this goes and hopefully Australia catches up and we can do something about it here to try and help ultimately make better outcomes for patients and therapists.
1: Nice talking to you, Sam.
0: Thanks, Chris. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.